Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. And I said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good luck. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. Second captain, first captain, whatever. Oh, well, come on in and join us. You're very welcome to the Irish Times Second Captain's Sportsbook Special. Murph is here. Hello there. Hi, Kieran. Ken is here. Oh, how are you doing? Good to see you. I'm Owen. I'm here. And I'm super excited. I saw Ryan Tuberty introduce the Late Late Toy Show as his favourite programme of the year. Yeah. Well, this is my favourite podcast of the year. It's our own Late Late Toy Show, just without the Christmas jumpers, the worry eaters, and the pain in the arse, Billy Barricades. The worry eaters, you, don't look at me like that, can you? What? know what the worry eaters are? The worry eaters. What's You're going to have to educate the man. Oh, Unbelievable. Is this some country thing? It's just the greatest toy that's been some, invented ever. Some country thing. What it's only it? the craze that's sweeping the entire globe. What is it? Something to do with Frozen? No. <laughs> no, good no, guess, it's, though. It's, it's, it's sweeping the globe in a similar way. Have you seen Frozen, by the way? Uh, no, not yet. No, I've got... But they're on Frozen 2 now. Yeah, well, well, whatever. But, I mean, I've got six nieces and nephews, and basically I've been asked for Christmas presents for these six nieces and nephews. Anything frozen. Yeah, Murph, I got... Yeah. Uh, Doesn't matter. Something similar. I've actually purchased one already. Uh, there's a, a kind of a crooked snowman. I can't remember yeah. his name. Yeah, yeah, But yeah. he's yeah, he's a key character. Okay. Well, Anybody with kids listening to this conversation, um, it probably makes sense to. Yeah. Uh, the the rest of us without. don't really know yeah. what's going on. Anyway, Murph, tell, tell the man what a worry eater is. Well, it's the greatest cuddly toy that's oh. ever come out of the market. Wow, it's a cuddly right. toy with a zip, right? Mm-hmm. And the kid, your kid writes what's, what's worrying them. Yeah. So, you know, monsters under my bed, that's yeah. worrying me. Right. Puts it into the mouth of the worry eater. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then in the morning when you check, the slip of paper is gone and the worry eater has taken care of your little the problem kid, there. The kid has no worries. So it's a thing, a thing way of parents for to spy on their children. That's basically it, yeah. But uh, in a cuddly way. Oh, it's, it's gimmicky to me. I mean, do, do kids... <laughs> well, kids, well, it's, well, it's so are kids, are kids dumb, enough to, dumb enough to fall for that these days? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Yeah. I would have been up That's, until I was at like 16. Think of the other... <laughs> Think my acne's really starting to play up. I, I'm 14, my acne's really playing up. I put in the worry... Yeah, yeah. worry I thing. think that's overparenting, to be honest. I, I think overparenting is a... Is a uh, is a really dismal trend sweeping the, the, the world. Yeah. It's, you know, why are people trying to prying, take them? prying into their children's lives? I mean, just let them be. Hold on, trying to take the worry away from kids is over-parenting? Yes, Is that absolutely. not the very definition of parenting? No, it's over It's just all this, this constant, oh, tell me how you feel. Don't tell me how you feel. Just get on with it. Well, Ken, actually, you like this then. I've just come, uh, Murph's explained it perfectly there, but here's the, the promotional blurb. Just to fill, it, fill in the gaps a little bit. One of a friendly group of characters from the creative mind of whoever, the, the uh, Gert Hahn and Betty Sorgenfresser, is here to eat worries and nightmares. Simply Sorgenfresser means worry eater. Well, there you go. Uh, oh, yeah, sorry, yeah. So, sorry. Uh, Oh, so the name of the worry eater is, is, is the worry eater. No, That's... Betty Sorgenfresser seems to be the name of the. the it seems to have a first name as well. And okay. Gert Hahn is the the designer here. Anyway, the the Sorgenfresser is here to eat worries and nightmares. Simply write or draw the trouble or worry. Feed them into the zip mouth of the worry eater. When mum or dad find the worry, then it's a great opportunity to sit down and gently talk about the problem. That's so creepy. <laughs> it's like a police state. You know, let's, let's talk to the Stasi about you know what your issues are. Don't you have any issues? Oh, what do you mean you don't have any issues? But it's What's wrong and, with you? It's pink and cuddly. Maybe we need to get you some uh, prescription medication <laughs> to solve that you, lack of worry that you seem to be afflicted with. So this is our toy show, right? Okay. But one small pinprick in my excitement bubble. Okay. At the start of the year, I thought I'd be sitting here today talking about two of the all-time great Irish books. We had Paul Kimmage sitting down to write Brian O'Driscoll's autobiography. Roddy Doyle 
working with Roy Keane, arguably our two greatest ever sports people, both telling their stories with the help of two of the most renowned writers in the country. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't the only person excited by this. I heard Paul Kimmage uh, himself on Today with Sean O'Rourke this week saying that when he heard Roddy Doyle was doing Keane's book, he thought, bring it on. <laughs> he says, listen, yeah, okay, Keane's book might sell more, but Kimmage felt that uh, O'Driscoll's was the better story. So even one of the two ghostwriters saw it in those terms uh, in, in a battle to produce the best writing. Uh, a couple of things happened since then. Again, the Keane book wasn't quite as good as I thought it was going to be, I thought. Well, I Paul Kimmage said it was his book of the year. Yeah, and Malachy Clerkin loves it as well. Maybe I've, I've got to start rethinking it. A lot of, a lot of um, uh, very uh, prescient judges are saying this is a great book. Uh, I wasn't I quite so sure. I wouldn't have thought it was a great and book. And of course, the Kimmage O'Driscoll partnership didn't um, didn't happen. Didn't quite last, of course. Okay, so you did, so you you agree with me? You're not mad on the Keen book? Um, no, I, I mean, I thought it was I thought it was okay. I thought it was good for a footballer's autobiography. I read a lot of footballer's autobiographies. It was definitely better than most of them, but I would have expected that, given the given the two people involved in producing it. Um, I mean, Keane said something at the press conference about how, you know, someone said, is this the, the whole truth or the whole, you know, all of you? And he, he kind of said, no, of course not. It's just, <laughs> just some, some stuff I decided to write in a book. It's got no, you but know. Are, yeah, but are we being wrapped up too much in that? You know, we've, we've seen the press conferences. We've seen, everyone's read the interviews, seen the interviews. There were the leaks in advance. Are, are we judging it too much based on what was said around it rather than actually as a piece of work? Well, that's, I think that's, that's the point Kimmich was making, that he, he found it tiresome um, that all the headlines surrounding it and he didn't want to read it at first because he thought it's just going to be all this nonsense and then started reading it and found that he, there was some stuff in there that he found interesting. Um, but I, I remember Roddy Doyle made a comment um, around the time the, of the launch that he, he sort of didn't want to get into Keane's personal life uh, he, you know, that was sort of well, you know, it's his personal life. You know, this isn't really a personal book. And I thought, well, personal life is the professional life is quite well chronicled at this stage. I suppose and there was you some think bringing in Roddy Doyle, like by, by that choice, automatically it's not it's not a football writer. If you want to write about mm. a footman's football life, you hire a football writer. If you hire a guy who's really well known as a novelist, mm. then surely. You're saying by that choice, right, I'm going to say something more than just regular football talk. Yeah. Otherwise, hire Paul Hayward. Yeah, which in fairness, he, he does to an extent. I mean, there were some interesting stories in there. Um, uh, you know, and the, the, it wasn't as though, I mean, he, t- he told some stories against himself, I guess. The, oh, yeah. The and goalkeeper, he's... the goalkeeping thing. Which Jesus, was? That sticks in my mind. When the, the guys, was it the goalkeeper... Let in a goal Craig from like Gordon. Craig Gordon, <laughs> a goal from a distance. So Keane challenges everybody to, he puts on the goalkeeper's gloves and challenges everyone. He'll pay them a thousand pounds if they can score a free kick against them from 25 yards. Uh, but they have to pay him a hundred quid if he, if he saves it. And obviously he keeps a clean sheet and say, you know, makes, makes a bunch of money from his players and completely humiliates his goalkeepers and, he sort of says later, possibly permanently fractures his relationship with Craig Gordon. <laughs> and that really, uh, I think I, I would take you up on the point you make that his professional life has been well chronicled. His footballing, uh, his playing life has, his management life hadn't been. And this yeah. is interesting for that. I think it does. But I, but I don't think uh, the, the account of what happened at Sunderland, I feel there was stuff missing from that. I, I just don't, I don't understand how if what he's saying is what happened, happened. Why is he not still the manager of Sunderland? There was other things that happened happen there that don't make their way into this book. I feel I feel that the account is incomplete. I mean, I suppose any personal account is going to be personal, is going to be partial, is not going to be complete. But I just didn't see the basis for the breakdown in the relationship that happened based on what he explained in the book. Does, does Brian O'Driscoll's book suffer from the, the same problem of a guy not wanting to give too much that, no, you, that uh, what, what you're seeing is is part of what a person is as opposed to the whole of what a person is no i mean i mean o'driscoll's one i think suffers from the fact that it's o'driscoll who who no, i'm not that o'driscoll is not a, an interesting subject for a book but just that he has no particular interest in talking about himself in any in any revealing way he's not he's not interested in that and he's he seems to me to have a concern with how people perceive him um to an unusual extent. The the story of the, the school kid who said yeah. that you weren't handing out trick-or-treats. There's a kid going around bad-mouthing him in in, uh, <laughs> in Glonski or whatever. Yeah. Saying, and it's really, really... like, And you're kind of reading it thinking, 
Right. You know, like afterwards, if you're, you know, you're you're not thinking it as you're reading it, but I mean, if you're thinking, right, he's disconcerned about what a 10-year-old is saying around Klonsky. Mm. This 10-year-old's going around telling the other 10-year-olds that Brother Disco's a big head and he doesn't answer the door because he doesn't want to give out sweets to those kids because he's gr- he's like the selfish giant, you know? Mm. He just lives in that big house and he doesn't care about us. Yeah. And uh, You're kind of thinking, This well, is wrecking O'Driscoll's head to think of this, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, if you're going <laughs> to... And I get the impression, while, while the story, I'm, I'm sure, is told partly kind of in jest, you know? There's something genuine there as well. He actually does worry about that kind of stuff. He gets... he, I think he, he gets... Neuro- like, I mean, the other story that sticks in my head from it is the, is the before the England game, where he, he gives it... He throws all this raw meat to the press as the hot-headed 25-year-old inexperienced captain and he says ah oh, we're going to give the pro and sandwich brigade something to think about and you know England are under a lot of pressure and all this kind of stuff and then Woodward sort of menaces him with all this well we do it talking on the pitch the longer you're in this game the more you learn to keep quiet and then Ireland win and O'Driscoll resolves never ever to do that again because for the, for the few days between giving that giving those remarks to the press and actually winning that game he went through hell you know everyone's going oh, everyone thinks I'm this everyone thinks I'm you know, and he's like, I don't but those are interesting points. Again, he does he does give something of himself in certain ways. He talks about uh, anyone who's ever liked a girl and not known exactly um, <laughs> how to go about getting to know her. He sets up this date with uh, with Amy and makes a bit of a balls of it. Timing wasn't great. She's in there with friends. He's supposed to just swan in, arriving. Oh, hello, mutual friend. Oh, um, sorry, Amy. Yeah, no, I've seen you on TV. You're great. Uh, and, and take it from there. It doesn't quite work out that way at all. In fact, even beforehand, he's he's thinking he's just going to back out of the whole thing. And it's quite nice. It's quite, it's something that, um, yeah, that, 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 that gives a glimpse of something away from just sport. Within the sporting um, sphere, I'm actually fascinated by his relationship with Paul O'Connell. Really fascinated. I thought that was actually the best part of the book, O'Connell begins to make a massive name for himself and is the Munster, uh, Munster captain. O'Driscoll's convinced he wants the Irish captaincy and actually, well, doesn't doesn't confront him about it. Asks O'Gara about it. He's thinking O'Gara's the conduit between Leicester yeah. and Munster players here. And actually, O'Gara's a real leader. If, if he sticks with me, then we'll be okay. But he's been talking big about it. Maybe it was after the second Heineken Cup. O'Gara's saying, this O'Driscoll guy, I mean, this uh, O'Connell guy, he's incredible. What a leader. He's yeah. just the greatest leader you could possibly ever want for your team. O'Driscoll's saying, thanks uh, thanks for that, mate. So they have a chat. O'Gara says to him, no, I do still think you should be captain. You just need to get yourself fitter. O'Gara says to O'Driscoll, right? Yeah, yeah. And that moves on a little bit. It might be a year or two later. Uh, the issues are still bubbling away on the surface. And eventually O'Connell knocks on the hotel room door, goes in, says, Brian, I, I heard just, you think I want the captaincy. I don't. I'm, I'm delighted to be a player under you and I'll continue to lead and, and kind of walks off. I just thought it suggested a couple of things that the, the two, clearly O'Connell and O'Driscoll don't have the relationship that O'Gara and O'Driscoll have. Yeah. It's, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm sure, you know, they, they seem to get on fine, but they're not best friends or anything like that. And it's just amazing having those two monumental personalities within the same setup. And O'Driscoll and him said, well, O'Connell was such a big man for doing that. I really appreciate it. Then there's a telling, a much smaller but slightly telling remark later in the book when O'Driscoll's a bit uncomfortable with the end of his career and uh, just with the last year when yeah. he's doing all these goodbyes and uh, it's, it's all getting a little bit much. Uh, he's asked to do... I think, which, I, which I think he started to see the autobiography almost as, as being almost another leg in that you know what yeah. I mean like another oh here here he goes again you know because I think it's important for him I'm sorry I know I'm interrupting no, here yeah. because I remember but it's important to him to be seen as kind of this modest person like you know someone who who isn't despite his stupendous success who hasn't forgotten you know what kind of person he he hasn't forgotten his, his key human values you know so when he's there with that massive banner that's going to freak out any man I mean, even, Hood, even Cristiano you know? Ronaldo might have looked at that and gone no Cristiano Ronaldo would have been yes that's we not have they, for once batter? they've got it right. <laughs> for once they've got it right. But for O'Driscoll, that was all. And I think that the whole autobiography thing, again, would have been, he just sort of wanted, yeah, let's just box this off. I don't really want to make a big noise with this thing. But sorry, on No, just a point about O'Connell was that um, the, I, I can't remember, it was, Addy, it was so, some sponsor of O'Driscoll wanted to do some sort of promo for his last game where everybody is filmed all these guys are filmed, uh, teammates, opponents, talking about how great Brian O'Driscoll is, essentially, before a match. And yeah. this is played out. I can't remember the exact structure of that or the exact mechanics, but that was essentially it. And, O'Con- and O'Driscoll said, no, I'm putting the kibosh on that straight away. And what he said was, imagine Paul O'Connell sitting there talking about how great I am. 
And it's funny that it was O'Connell that that, that was the name that popped into his yeah, head yeah. first. Certainly, it was the first that popped into the sheet. They ended up doing it though. Adias ended Did up they? doing it. Yeah, yeah. Well, maybe, Sean O'Brien was. Okay. See, Sean O'Brien wasn't in the that was, squad. That was quite. So. And also, that, oh well, yeah, maybe that was it then. Yeah, but whatever, yeah. whatever. Uh, uh, Big Adam Jones was, involved. was uh, involved, and a couple of English lads. Yeah, it was. It was a really weird thing. Thank you, Brian. Maybe that was was that after. Thank you, Brian. This <laughs> <laughs> is really. I, I'm trying to remember the English players involved, but uh, uh, yeah, yeah. It was good English, good, good generic English rugby accent, though. Anyway, yeah. the, I suppose the point is there. We have uncovered a few interesting nuggets. So, uh, so uh, it's not. It's it's not what Paul Kimmich would call uh, no interesting. I don't think. I mean, I want to see the no, twenty thousand words. I want to see yeah. the twenty thousand words. Free the twenty thousand words of the original Paul Kimmich, <laughs> Brian O'Driscoll draft. The book as a whole certainly isn't going to go down as. Uh, as one of yeah. the great Irish sports books, uh, Keynes is Keynes obviously is more of interest in it, I think, but probably falls short. Maybe we're holding to too high a standard. You? Dunphy's book fell a little bit short as well. I'm, I'm always waiting for this proper, full, iconic Keen book to be written, and I still don't think that's necessarily happening. Anytime we have these end of year chats, though, there's a huge interest in all time classics as well as a current offering. So we're going to talk to two of our favourite writers about their favourite books ever shortly. Malachy Clerkin is going to be here in studio from right here in this building. And the brilliant Lawrence Donegan as well. But just let's get a handle on our own choices from 2014, lads. If we're not putting Keen or Driscoll in the mix, Murph, your favourite sports book this year? Uh, it will surprise precisely no one to hear this. I think The Bloodied Field by Michael Foley is the best book of best sports book of 20, uh, 2014 and uh, one of the best of all time. I think yeah, I, I, there is literally not enough words of praise I can heap on well, this I, book. Well, but for those who weren't listening a few weeks back. It's the story of uh, Bloody Sunday uh, told... I, I, you know, I, I, the, the history of the historical... Uh, of a, a historical telling of uh, a period. Uh, you know, I mean, I've read a couple of Max Hastings books and they're like the... The, the bigger story told through the prism of the experiences of an individual soldier or an individual person uh, living through the conflict. And that's basically what Michael Foley has done by picking a couple of the Tipperary players, Michael Hogan in particular, obviously, um, a couple of the, like the Secretary General of the GA at the time, uh, who lived in, in the shadow of Crow Park, a couple of members of uh, the Lawrence O'Toole's Club in Dublin who were involved both in the killing of the uh, soldiers and uh, British spies in the morning and then go and play in Crow Park later that afternoon. I think that Bloody Sunday is such a um, it's such a heavy phrase in Irish history that people automatically presume they know the story of Bloody Sunday and I would have said that I would have known the story of Bloody Sunday. To be honest, I, I learned loads of things yeah. about Bloody Sunday that I never knew and it's told it, it's, it's such a fast-paced book. Everything about it is fast-paced. It's a thriller it's it's effectively a thriller um and yet also unbelievably touching uh and shines a light on a, a topic in Irish history that a lot of people don't know anything we about we had so. michael foley in here in studio and i think that certainly when we spoke to him i know know a lot of people reacted really well to the book uh to the interview and um i guess that's what what, what an author wants when he's speaking about a book um but uh, he poured his, life, his heart and soul into it over the last few years and he was, at times he was getting quite emotional talking about the yeah. process and talking about what he found. So it's and gone really well for him in the last number of weeks. I know the amount of uh, copies that were printed actually didn't suffice and was sold out in places and they're getting more in, which is great to hear because it's good to see people doing those kind of books that are... Yeah, if you're looking for it on, on in Dublin, just as a matter of interest, it is available in Debray Books on Graft Street. I was in there yesterday. And yeah. and I, I, th- there. I think there are a lot more coming in yeah. elsewhere as far, but as, the, as far as I know as well. And do the, like the... the the big thing that I took from Michael's interview with us was that he was sitting there, uh, there during the championship this year, daydreaming, looking at the spot where Michael Hogan died during, you know, like down periods in games, you know, uh, blowout games in Crow Park that happened over the course of the summer. He couldn't get away from the fact that here we are watching this sport and 80 years ago or 90 years ago, this is what this actually happened most, in this very spot. Most of my favourite my own favourites this year were GA or GA related. I would say a bloody field is also uh, you having put put me onto it is also the, probably top of my pile. After that, it's between a few of the autobiographies. Paul Galvin's was very good, which he wrote himself. Anthony Daly's was excellent with Christy O'Connor. And, I like Anthony Daly's book. As yeah, well. Shane Curran with. Um, well, I'm going to put Shane Curran's just above Anthony Daly's. Uh, Shane Curran with Tommy Conlon. It's called Cake. Um, I think any sportsman who can tell the story of smearing his gloves with Vaseline so that he could sabotage the opposing goalkeeper's gloves before a game is okay by me. And you know you're onto a winner when he follows this anecdote with the line, the irony was that Alan Kane's father had bought a load of Capco roof slates in me only a couple of months before the match. <laughs> <laughs> but there's, the reason, there's a few reasons I like. One of, it's one of the best accounts I've heard of life inside a dressing room. 
just this prison full of demented animals waiting to be unleashed. And mm. it's, it's beautifully written uh, and beautifully rendered as well. His own personality, he's constantly telling stories like that one. That's one of the better known ones, the, the one with the glove. And another one of the well, and there's loads of ones that I hadn't heard before, but probably the best known story of his uh, would have been the 1989 Colic Minor final. A teammate was about to, to knock in a last minute penalty, knock it over the bar, I should say, to take a draw against, was it Galway? Galway, yeah. Uh, and earn a replay. Now, Curran, I think, had already missed one that day. Anyway, he takes it. He's there thinking. He's actually talking to Sean O'Dwyer, player he's marking, and Dwyer saying, "Oh, he's, he's knocking this over the bar." And uh, and Curran says, "Like Effie is, runs in, brushes the penalty out of the way, and smashes it into the top corner, wheels away, celebrating." But the point is, he tells all these stories while arguing that they're not the actions of a madcap eccentric, but rather are part of a well thought out plan of somebody mm. who thinks these things through. <laughs> he doesn't convince me about that through the course of the book. And also, his life away from sport is very interesting. He's uh, an amazing quote from this: "In fifth class, I made a conscious de- fifth class." I made a conscious decision just to look at school as a place to connect and socialise, not a place to be educated. I just didn't have the capacity to be educated the way the education system was doing it. And he's dyslexic as well, which obviously didn't help matters. But as a result, he's had a very unconventional work life, which has culminated in recent years in a flood defence system that he created, which has been used worldwide, including in refugee camps in Somalia uh, and all all this kind of thing. So it's well worth it. It's a, a bloody field, I would say, my best sports book, but Cake by Shane Kern, just about the best autobiography of the year. Ken, your own favourite? Um, well, I read a lot of football books, mm-hmm. um, and of those, I think the best one this year was uh, the this special one, "The Secret Life of Jose Mourinho" by Diego Torres. Oh, yeah. We spoke to Diego on the show as well. So this was um, a cocktail of cruelty, vanity, ambition, and lies. <laughs> um, I mean, it was a it was a proper Put that in the paperback yeah, edition. It was a proper uh, kind of gothic. Uh, uh, like the the mad monk or something, Jose Mourinho locked away in his tower with his shadowy accomplice, accomplice George Mendes, you know, um, and just going absolutely crazy uh, in a Real Madrid dressing room, which is rejecting him. So this, these scenes of you know Mourinho on his knees, weeping tears, uh, you bastards, you have betrayed me, <laughs> you've betrayed me for the last time. This is this is the kind of incredibly hysterical and overwrought scene. Uh, which is quite commonplace in this book, um, which is also good on the sort of football side. Um, you know, it kind of gives quite a good definition of what Jose Mourinho's football is all about. I mean, anti-football in the kind of most literal sense of being anti-the football. I do not want that ball. Get the ball away from us. That's <laughs> <laughs> essentially how it boils down. But you could all, I mean, he he's obviously written the book. Uh, I mean, Diego Torres is a journalist with El Pais, um, well connected clearly to players in the Real Madrid dressing room who did not like Jose Mourinho. Uh, I mean, some of the guys who didn't like Jose Mourinho would have included Sergio Ramos, Iker, Iker Casillas, Casillas. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know senior Spanish international players um, who, I mean, someone or some, someone in that dressing room. I've got to say that the description of Marcelo as possibly the most gifted footballer in the Real Madrid squad makes me think that maybe he was one of the guys as well. <laughs> but only, Marcelo guy, an unstoppable only machine. Possible, uh, possible but but you could, you could when, you, when you were reading it, actually also glimpse an entirely an alternative reality in which Jose Mourinho is the only sane man at this completely insane club with these pampered maniacs who, like the, the most gigantic egos in Europe, you can't stand being sort of shunted around or, or put in their place by, by Mourinho. And they're moaning and whimpering about, like, we have no plan of static attack. Wait, you know, where is our plan for static attack? And you're like, well, you're supposed to be a footballer. I mean, that's your job. Do you want me to put the ball in the net for you as well? You... Babies, you know, this is you can imagine Mourinho kind of looking at him go, static attack. I've literally never had anyone say that to me before. I'm a coach. This is how you head away a corner. This is where you stand at a set piece. This is the formation. This is kind of who's play. Go and stick the ball in the net. You know? <laughs> I, I mean that's that's the alter that's what also might have been happening. You know, it's just you can't quite tell. I mean, obviously the narrative comes down very much on the side that Mourinho is like this absolute maniac. But you know, uh, one way or the other it was a it was good, really. Yeah, sounds great. So that's the special one, The Secret World of Jose Mourinho by Diego Torres, which 
uh, has been translated into English. Unless your Spanish has improved greatly no, again has, in, the, in, has, in the time. It was <laughs> it, translated by old uh, Pete Jensen. All right, that's uh, enough for now. From old Pete Jensen <laughs> is how you described yeah, Pete Jensen. Old Pete Jensen. Also busy at work on the Luis Suarez book this year with Sid Lowe. Oh, very good. Uh, which, uh, again, another another one in the, uh, let's say, Brian O'Driscoll category. I mean, it was a bit different because Suarez actually was in the position of having to sort of account for all these various crimes. <laughs> yeah, bad things I've done. Yeah, so, you know, I've been a guy. I don't really know why it happens. You know, I don't really know why it happens. And actually, to be honest, I'm drawing a line under it. So... Uh, so that's pretty much it. That's enough for now from this year. We'll get to some all-time classics. Delighted to be joined to talk great sports books by two esteemed authors, Malachi Clerken, the ghostwriter for Ruby Walsh's autobiography, and Lawrence Donegan, author of a number of books, most famously probably Four Iron in the Soul, uh, which is a first-hand, brilliant first-hand account of life as a caddy in professional golf. Lawrence is on the line. And Malachi, you're very welcome to the studio. Thanks very much. Always good to talk to you. Yeah, yeah we're doing well. Uh, we're doing very well, Lawrence. Always great to talk to, the, to, to you about this, Malachi, and great to have you involved in this one, Lawrence, I guess before we get into your all-time favourites and a little bit on this year, um, the shadowy world of ghostwriting, Maliki, has probably had a bit of a light cast on it this year. There was the Kimmage O'Driscoll breakup. There was Roddy Doyle <laughs> yeah. and Roy Keane, who did see their uh, their project through together. Um, how did you find that that process of ghosting Ruby's book enjoyable? Yeah, yeah, I remember. God, it's four four years ago now. Yeah, four or five years ago. Um, it came out in two thousand and ten. Uh, I really enjoyed it. I, I enjoyed it mostly because, uh, like, we were pretty close. Um, like, I had ghosted his column uh, in the old Sunday Tribune, and so we had a relationship. And um, I enjoyed sort of learning about his sport. I didn't know a whole pile about horse racing really before I started doing his column with him. And then the more I got to know about it and the more I got to know about him, the more interesting I found him. And I really enjoyed sort of... I enjoyed the fact that basically for six months I got to spend time with one of the great sportsmen, Mm. you know. And um, it didn't... In a way, I think that, that maybe it wouldn't particularly matter who that is. If you have that access... Um, to find out what you know, top level sport is about, um, and get that close to it, you couldn't but enjoy it. Like yeah. if you're doing this job, you know. I'm just thinking though, the, uh, there was Anthony Daly has told the story of his book this year with Christy O'Connor mm. and the first draft. The two of them, uh, you know, Christy's saying, "Here you go, Anthony. Here's the, here's your book." And Anthony Daly's like, oh, Jesus, uh, better get the highlighter out here. This is gone, this is gone, this is gone, this is gone. And it still ends up as a very good book. But yeah. I wonder, did you have the same issues? To an extent. I remember, actually, um, I lost a row with him early on um, because I, I sent him a first draft of a chapter um, in which I, I had included all the efforts um, that he had used on the tape. And... Um, he, uh, because I wanted to get his voice and I wanted to get the voice of, you know, the voice yep. of racing and the voice of everyday life and all that sort of stuff. And um, so I went down down to his house and, and was sitting at his kitchen table and um, he was going, yeah, all the all that has to come out. <laughs> and I was going, ah, Ruby, come on now, because, you know, this is, you know, this is how, like, nobody reading this really believes that uh, a, a horse racing yard is this pure, unvarnished... Mm. Uh, un, un- oh, fiddlesticks. Oh, fiddlesticks. Uh, yeah, yeah. Good golly, all that, all that yeah, sort of yeah. stuff. And he says, yeah, but when you see it written down, it just doesn't look right. And I went, yeah, right, okay. And and after a while, I, I lost that fight with him. And uh, oddly enough, there is one F word in the whole book and he has Richard done what he's saying. Lawrence, <laughs> <laughs> you had a, almost the opposite challenge in a way, I guess, in, in Four Iron in the Soul anyway, in that you very much were the story. You're, you're placing yourself at the centre of the narrative. What, why did you decide to go to write that book? Well, there was a couple of reasons. Uh, one, I was a huge fan of uh, George Plimpton, who yeah. an American writer uh, back in, well, he only died maybe four or five years ago. And he was a he was a guy who kind of play, he worked for Sports Illustrated and he placed himself in situations. He wrote a great book Actually, the best Plimpton for anybody who's interested, there's a collection of all these kind of sporting participation uh, uh, adventures. He did a great one. He played triangle with the New York Philharmonic, <laughs> um, which is great. And he and he was played quarterback with the Detroit Lions. He boxed Archie Moore, uh, the famous light heavyweight. Um, so anyway, so I was a huge fan of Plimpton. And 
you know, just trying to basically just copy that idea. Um, and I thought, well, caddying, I, I wrote a piece for The Guardian. Actually, I read another book, a book called To the Lynx Land, which is written by an American writer called Michael Bamberger. And Bamberger basically did the same thing. He caddied, he went off and caddied for a guy called uh, Peter Teravainian, who was a Buddhist. It was a great book, actually. It was about 300 pages long. The problem with it was that uh, he caddied for the first 80 pages, which were brilliant, and then went off to find the soul of golf for the next 200. <laughs> typical, in typical American fashion, he went off to find the soul of golf. And it was total tripe, you know? Yeah. But I thought, there's a germ of a really good idea in there. And it kind of, it was just a, it was just a kind of happy coincidence. All these things converged. I managed to find a golfer, uh, and, and off I went. Actually, it's funny, uh, Malachi talking about his Ruby Walsh uh, uh, experience. The one when I did it with a, a golfer called uh, Ross Drummond, and there was no kind of agreement. You know, I was going to do it. He knew the drill. Um, but he said, I've only got one stipulation. Can I see the book before it comes out? Uh, just to make, there's not, you know, there's nothing I, I really don't like. And I said, that's fine, but you'll have no kind of editorial saying it. And he said, no bother. So I gave him the manuscript and he came back to me and the only thing was, could you take some of the swearing out? Wow. I don't want my <laughs> nephew to read it. <laughs> it's, it, it. Ross's nephew is the problem. I mean, it, I, I'm kind of concerned whether just the mothers of all of these sports people, they're the only people, the only readers they're actually right. concerned about yeah. is uh, trying to keep it clean for their mothers. But I mean, it is kind of interesting that, say, you were uh, Ross Drummond's caddy and... Yep. That is that like that is you know it 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 may have been a book for you but it was uh, it was his career it was a year in his career that he that he effectively handed over to a guy who had never caddied before and reading the book it's it it's I I love the book actually it's a brilliant uh, brilliant uh, relationship thanks. that yourself and Ross kind of strike up and it is interesting that that was the only problem that he had with the book because. You know, it 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 delves into some detail into what it's like to be a guy right at the very bottom rung of the European tour, and it's interesting that that he liked the book sufficiently for that to be the only major problem that he had with it. Uh, yeah, um, uh, t- to be honest, um, Ross was a I mean, obviously he wasn't he was just a journeyman, which I mean I don't say that to kind of demean demean him in any kind of way. Journeyman golfers are incredible golfers, but um, he was a very cautious individual, and it was it took a supreme act of bravery on his part. I think he'd got to the stage, I think he was 42 at the time, and he just got to the stage where he thought, you know, my career's going nowhere, and I need to blow this up. And, and luckily for me, I came along at, at that exact moment in his life where he kind of had reached the conclusion that he had to do something drastic. And, and from his point of view, I think drastic was, uh, you know, burying his soul in a, in a book with, with no editorial control. Again, it was, a, a, it was lucky for me. Um, and as it turned out, it, it was pretty good for him in a way. Um, remarkably, uh, it was the best year he ever had on the European Tour was the year that I caddied for him. <laughs> Although, I have to say, his best performance of the year, I'll never forget this, I, uh, it was a good to June, he'd had a great performance somewhere, I can't remember, he finished fourth or something, and I say to him, right, I, I need to take a week off, Ross, I, I need to go to Donegal and get, half, get this book, get started on this book. So I'm going to go away up to Donegal for a couple of weeks, and and can you find another caddy? Uh, he said, "I no bother." It was a tournament up in Newcastle. I can't remember the name of it, but I'll never forget uh, w- watching this event unfold. He, uh, he's winning with five holes to go, and I'm <laughs> thinking, "Oh my oh, god, no. I've written this whole book. He's going to win this golf tournament, and uh, and I'm not going to be there for that moment." I couldn't believe it, and, and, and well. What happened in the end is that I think Retief Goosen birdied the last four holes to beat him by one shot. But I mean, it was just, I mean, it was, it just kind of added up to the whole, there was a kind of serendipity about the whole thing that, that I, you know, I look back and I think, God almighty, if I tried that again in any circumstances, in any, you know, in a different subject, it would never happen the way it happened. It's brilliant to hear Lawrence talking about that, about writing a book in that way. The ghostwriting thing, mm. I just, I was kind of interested to to hear people's reactions. Obviously, a huge amount of talk is almost saying about Roddy Doyle mm. uh, doing Roy Keane's book, and right here is the here is the guy that's going to blow it all apart. We're going to this is going to be a whole new way of writing uh, sports books because here's a guy who's who's never done it before. And you to read Roy Keane's book. I mean, you like Roy Keane's book, yeah. and I think there's a lot to recommend in it. But it's quite it's quite similar to a book that he would have written with. With the, with the sports writer. And do you think that that maybe shows up the limitations of the ghost writer? That basically you can yeah. only write the book 
that the person wants. Well, this no is, matter how good a writer you yeah, are. Yeah, I mean, like this is this is this was the second thing I was going to get onto about about uh, ghostwriting is that on a certain level, any anybody who does uh, ghostwrites a book or ghostwrites anything, um, that's not their only job. Generally, their job is that they write for a living, and I write pieces for the Irish Times however many times a week and I sort of you know not to not to overblow it but I kind of I agonize over what I'm writing you know and I, I kind of move sentences around and I do this and, and and what I send in is what is what I'm happy with in the end yeah the process of ghostwriting at a certain point you cut it off you let it go and you go it's not my name on the spine it's not my name on the front. It's not my picture on the front. It's this guy's book. And I am helping him to do it as best I can. I'm doing a huge amount of work on it. I'm putting a lot of energy into it. But at a certain point, you have to go, that's his story. I can't, I can't tell yeah. it any better than this. Uh, I, can, I can only tell it the way that he wants it. Um, and yeah, you're right. That is the limitation of it. Uh, yeah. and, and just you know, Roddy Doyle's name was actually on the front. Of yeah, that's a different sort of uh, you know, yeah, book, which uh, is interesting. Yeah, yeah, I think that's probably exactly why because he, he has a big name in the world of literature. Outside yeah, Roddy Doyle's name is on the front sport. to sell it. Yeah, yeah. Which is if Ruby Walsh's book wasn't going to sell more with Malachi Clerken. But no, it's, <laughs> it's funny you say that because Tommy Conlon was speaking. There's been a couple of good pieces written about ghostwriting this year. Richard Fitzpatrick wrote one. Paul Kimmage has one here. And Kimmage uh, Conlon has written the Shane Curran book. Yeah. But he also wrote John Hayes's book a couple of years back. And there's a quote here. I had a stand-up row with the publisher Simon Schuster when they told me the line of speakers for the John Hayes launch, and I wasn't mentioned. I said, what about the ghostwriter? They said, you don't want to speak, do you? Yeah. He said, I effing do. And Hayes says, you have to speak, sure you wrote the effing thing. <laughs> but in many ways, ghostwriting is still the publisher's dirty little secret. Uh, I, 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 I don't know if I read it or if I heard somebody say it or if I read a piece about ghostwriting at one stage uh, where they said, uh, "And are you not annoyed, you know, that your name isn't, you know, your name isn't front and centre? And the guy says, as long as my name is on the cheque. <laughs> yeah. Lawrence, is it something you have had a go at or, or you would have a go at ghostwriting? No, I tell you what, there's a, there's a great book that's called Confessions of a Ghostwriter and it's written by a guy called Andrew Crofts. I think he was interviewed in The Guardian last year by Robert McCrum, the literary editor. I think he's written 80, 80 autobiographies. Um, and he was a guy, I don't know, remember Robert Harris wrote that book, uh, Ghost? Yeah. It was a novel, it was turned into a movie. And, he, and Harris went to, 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 to talk to Crofts about the whole art of ghostwriting. Go, uh, nobody's ever asked me. I'd love to do one actually. Nobody has ever ever asked me. I don't know what's wrong with me. Maybe I'm. Uh, maybe I've got uh, that boy wouldn't be able to keep his own personality out or something like that. But it would be a, a great thing. Paul, um, Paul Hayward wrote. Uh, I, I spoke. He's done a few. He did. I think he did Fergie's and he did Michael Owens. Uh, Paul Hayward from the Telegraph, and he said the, the best. He, it was a. He just got. A, it was a chance to get close to a, a top, top, top level sportsman, yeah. and it's the kind of chance that you'll never get. You know, if you're hanging around at press conferences, or even if you've got a decent relationship with a with a kind of top sports guy. But if you're actually writing his book, it really is a chance to get into into the, into the mind of that guy, and, and you know, and you just put that in the bank as a sports writer. Well, that's it, Lawrence, because like you did the you were the Guardian's golf guy for for a long time. You got close to. A fair few of the the golfers, you you kind of know them and whatever, yeah. but uh, you'd still the the limitations of being a well, reporter, even on the beat, no matter how long you're on it, no matter how often you see these guys, uh, because the sports world is so sanitized and you're you're so sort of fed in little tiny portions. Yeah, exactly that. The chance to spend five, six, seven months with. The with, transaction with changes. The transaction totally. changes yeah. when oh, completely it completely changes. And yeah. I tell you, you know, I, I'd like to. I mean, I don't know him super well, but I'm pretty pally with say like Ian Poulter. But you know, I'm never going to be sitting at Ian Poulter's kitchen table as he's got his bank statement in his hand and going, "Well, pff, things aren't great." You know, well, things are obviously <laughs> great for him. But you know what I mean? But I was able to do that with the with, with Ross. You know, and, you know, and I'm sure Maliki knows Ruby Walsh far better than anybody else knows Ruby Walsh or anybody else. Mm. You know, in the world of sports writing, so it's like it's a great chance 
to 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 get to you know to experience that. And as I say, I would love to do it, but but sadly, no one's ever asked me. All right, well, we'll put it out there for you, Lawrence. Anyway, if yeah, anyone are listening <laughs> here, for work. we do we do want to talk about a couple of your all time favorites here, guys. And uh, you've already mentioned there, Lawrence uh, Plimpton's writing and uh, Paper Line and a few of the others there, which I mean, they're they're pretty much all brilliant. I think all those participatory uh, efforts of participatory journalism that he put out there. But your favorite book of all time? Uh, it would have to be. I thought long and hard about this. Uh, it is like um, in High Fidelity, Hornby's book, yeah. where you know you, your list changes every three <laughs> minutes or every five minutes. I, I, I went with Sea Biscuit. You put me on the spot, and and, and Sea Biscuit by uh, Laura Hillenbrand. And why? Oh well, it's just well. First, first and foremost, it's a brilliantly written book. You know, she is a, a magnificent prose stylist, uh, as proven. You know, in her work in the New Yorker, she wrote Unbroken, which is the new Angelina Jolie movie, apparently. Um, the great, it's also, it's a great story, you know, even from the size of the horse. It's just a great underdog story, um, brilliantly told, and it's, rel- you know, it's, it's relevant to its time, you know, it's redolent of a time, you know, it's set in Depression era of America, you know, it's the underdog horse, it's the underdog people trying to make, you know, it's all just... Of a one, it's just a brilliant story. Story brilliantly, to- brilliantly told. Yeah, there's the, the three men at the centre of it are oh, Ch- incredible. Char- Charles Howard, the owner. Tom Smith's a trainer, a sort of horse whisperer type, uh, very strange character. And Red Pollard, this jockey who, uh, if memory serves, I think he might have only had sight from one eye. He was mm. half crippled. There are all these issues with with pretty much yeah. everybody involved. Hence the amazement, uh, and hence how Seabiscuit became such, I guess, a, a, an icon in America in the thirties. Well, and the other thing. It, 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 you know, those characters, you, you couldn't, if you sat down and tried to write a novel, you wouldn't come up with three characters like that. They're just so, again, she draws them brilliantly, but they are just so, I mean, this is kind of bottom class, middle class, upper class. You know, it's just, you know, again, just brilliantly drawn and, and, and so lucky that, that the, you know, the story revolves around those three characters from her point of view. The uh, interesting thing about that book, Malky, is that it got the full Hollywood treatment, yeah. I think, within a year. Um, certainly not soon after, yeah. Yeah, Toby Maguire, I think. Was yeah, it? yeah, so it's it's one of those ones that wasn't even allowed to stand alone for any concerted period of time. As a book, it, beca- it became a movie. I don't know if that changes how people perceive. These I don't know. Now, in fairness, I never watched the movie. Yeah, um, it was. De- uh, it would actually. It actually was. Apparently, decent. it was supposed yeah. to be quite good. Yeah, yeah, yeah as, yeah, as annotations yeah. go. Well, it, it was kind of like all these movies. It was you know her book is so textured and <laughs> yeah. nuanced and, and detailed, so, yeah. but the movie's kind of a, th- a thinly drawn portrait of the book, really. Yeah, yeah. but there's, and, you and know, like, there's nothing unusual about. That. Yeah, Lawrence is exactly right. Like, you know, the 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 characters in it are, are are so brilliant, but but also the the structure of it is is so perfect because it goes from first chapter is the is the horse, second chapter is the trainer, third chapter, and all these things are kind of woven together eventually. Another book that came out around the same time as it um, was um, the. Great, it was a golf book, The Greatest Game Ever Played by oh, Fra- yeah. Francis Wiemey in Brookline in 1913. And uh, it was written by Mark Frost, the Frost, guy yeah. who wrote Twin Peaks. And it, 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 quite similar in structure, really taking all these different characters of a time so long ago yeah. and weaving them together. I remember just reading yeah, that. Yeah, that was one of, my, uh, one of my first ever in-depth interviews uh, was with Mark Frost about that book. <laughs> yeah. That was the early days of my... You didn't uh, quiz him about Twin Peaks as well, did you? Uh, no, <laughs> the, the, no, I think I might have got a mention. The comeback. Yeah. But I mean, I, like, hasn't he gone back to Twin Peaks as well? Yeah, yeah. yeah. There's, yeah. Uh, there's a, a sequel coming out or a, a new miniseries, I think, coming out. But I mean, I think that that's interesting as well, that Seabiscuit and The Greatest Game Ever Played do take you back to a time when, yes, it's sport, but it's it's it seems like three hundred years ago, ah, totally, and in, yeah. and in a way that it kind of the writer can paint a full picture for you without you without anything else bleeding into the the picture that she's actually trying to give you, which I think is kind of interesting. Yeah, as and well. a, and at a certain point you have to trust that writer as well, yeah. you know, because she is you know writing that era as best she can, obviously with, with as best research she can, but everybody's dead, you know, so she's um, painting it, and so you as a reader are kind of buying into what she's what she presents, exactly the, the textures of it that yeah. she presents. But, do you know what, what, I was say, what elevates that book even further and say something like Four Islands, so I'm not comparing the two, obviously hers is a much greater book, is that, it, you know, it's, it's painted on a broader canvas, you know, there is a, mm. you know, a social and economic uh, backdrop to the whole thing which elevates the book you know you have great books but you know, there's a, yet another layer yet another layer the texture of the whole experience of reading it you've got an honorary mention also Lawrence I'm told 
in, in where? For another book, you wanted to give another one a mention? Oh, sorry, yeah, so, uh, sorry, but, uh, yeah, sorry. Yeah, I did, I wanted to mention that Eamon Dunphy's yeah. Only a Game, which yeah. I absolutely loved. Again, I, I can't, who was the ghostwriter on that? Peter I, I Ball. Quite, was it? His name is Peter yeah. Ball. But I, I didn't know that until about two years ago, and I went yeah. through my whole, you know, the last 25 years thinking, oh, my goodness, Dunphy was playing all that football and, and writing this great book at the same time. <laughs> Peter Ball, uh, who was the uh, he was the soccer writer in the Sunday Tribune for a couple of yeah. decades, um, he insisted, always said that he insisted on the question mark at the end of Only a Game, yeah. and that the book didn't work without the question mark. Yeah, it's, mm. it's the most influential punctuation mark in, yeah. in uh, a sport, uh, uh, sporting literature yeah. history. What did you particularly like about it, Lawrence? Well, I just uh, again, it, it was just in the context of it. You know, a book like that came out. It's like um, you ever read the book uh, Ball Four or the baseball book? Yeah, Jim you know? Jim Bouton. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, just the context of the time. You know, you have all these. You know, you had Hovecraft's book and uh, Glanville and all these guys, and then you, you a guy who actually played the game was willing to. You know, break the break the code, or you you know, to to actually write what it was what it was really like. You know, that took a lot of bravery, and there's you know, there's a value in that. It was just a, a you know, a really you know, a revelatory book for its time. I mean, I suppose now it's not. You know, when you've got all sorts of stuff coming out, but when you think back then, you know, it was a, a pretty brave step and, and a good, a great read as well, well written. Funny, Malachi, I think your favorite book. Similarly, was was groundbreaking in, in maybe it wasn't the first of its type done, but certainly it presented a, a portrayal of a, a part of sport that yeah. hadn't really been presented in this way before. What's the book? Yeah, mine is, is Fever Pitch, yeah. Nick, Nick Hornby. Um, and actually, much like exactly as Lawrence is saying there, you know, you know, uh, the uh, memoirs of journeyman pros are sort of ten a penny these days, and there have been many of them since Only a Game. Uh, memoirs of a fan uh, and his life through the lens of his fandom of his soccer club exactly are far myriad there's far too many of them but that I always kind of think that Fever Pitch gets kind of kicked around because it kind of spawned so many really shite books you know (laughs) (laughs) Um, but uh, I I go back I actually go back to it maybe once a year and dip into it I I really love Fever Pitch. Maybe it's the time that I read it. I think I was like 19. I was probably in first year in college trying to learn how to do sports journalism. Mm. I, 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 I picked it up and read about uh, football in a completely different way than I had read about any sport mm. really before. Um, and yet it was 100% how you experienced that sport. Exactly, yeah. And that, that's kind of the interesting thing about yeah. Fever Pitch. It's, it's just... Good, it's just badly enough written for you to think that, geez, if I had sat down, I, maybe I could have written that shagging thing, you know? I think you're being very... I, I, I think you should need to choose your phrasing a little better there, Murphy. Sorry, it's Matt, not sorry. badly written yeah. at all. No, no, is, no, I know what you're getting it's, at. Uh, de- sorry, yeah. it's not badly written. It's deceptively <laughs> simply written. Yes, exactly. You said badly, it's okay. The correction is... There was a chapter that that really stuck with me from the first time I read it. Um, and it was about uh, an Arsenal player called Gus Caesar, who uh, was your archetypal butt of fan abuse. Like, uh, he played, he played like, left-back, or he was one of the full-backs for a while. Um, and he got desperate abuse from the Arsenal fans. Absolute day, desperate yeah. abuse. And it was a figure of fun, you know? It was just, oh, God, is Gus Caesar still playing for Arsenal kind of thing. Yeah. And Hornby really went into it. And, and I had never thought of it this way before, but of course is exactly right. He says, I, I watched Gus Caesar and I thought of how he was as a 12-year-old. As a 12-year-old, he was the best footballer in his school. As a 15-year-old... He was the best footballer in his school, the best footballer in his county. He probably played representative. He played for England schoolboys. So this guy, all the way through his life, was this phenomenal, really incredible. He was the the best thing that, that everybody who knew him wanted to be. They wanted to be a footballer, but he was the best. Think about that, and he went all the way up until now he's playing for Arsenal. He's playing at the top, in the first division, and he's playing week by week by week. And you say his name, and his name is a complete figure of fun. And I'd never thought of it that way, you know. And yeah. it, it's very simple. And um, 
that stuck with me for forever. I re- I go back to that book ev- once a year. And I'm sure I dip m- into it. Yeah. I'm sure most people are very familiar with it, but it is uh, Nick Hornby's um, account of his own. Being just his life as, a, of as, a, as an artist fan, and, time, and, yeah. and you know it goes into his own life and his relationship with his father and all that sort of stuff, and it's great. The chapter, if if anybody ever wants to give themselves a bit of a, just a lift uh, of really great sports writing, read the chapter when the night that Arsenal beat Liverpool in in 1989 is just brilliant. Lawrence, are you a fan of the book? I, again, Malachy makes a very good point. Uh, the book is a is a, a fine book. I, I really like Hornby's writing generally. Um, but it has been spoiled over the years. There's been two terrible movies, mm. one of which Hornby himself was involved in. Yeah. And, you know, it spawned a generation of these uh, copycat books. Actually, Fever Pitch was a bit of a copycat book itself. Didn't it kind of copy a fan's note by Exley? A Exley, little bit? yeah, yeah. Um, but... Uh, but yeah, that's kind of spoils the experience. I haven't actually looked at the book for ten years, simply for those reasons that I'm fed up with those kind of uh, fan love books um, and these terrible movies. Uh, but not, I might go back to it. Malky's, Malky's kind of slightly talked me back into it. I'll tell you a quick anecdote about Fever Pitch. Um, I was in a bookstore in Covent Garden the week it came out, and I was standing there buying a book, Covent Garden in London, and this kind of baldy guy came in with this willowy woman and the boy was so excited and he was pointing at the book and it was fever pitch and then he leaves and I say to the book oh who's that and, and the guy said that was Nick Hornby that's his own <laughs> <laughs> the very week it came I swear to God I am not making that up it was Nick Hornby and it was the book was published by Golands I know that and Golands was just around the corner in Covent Garden so it was definitely him oh, I'm not making it up well it's funny because Fever Pitch is one of those books uh, Lawrence that I've heard said about it that you don't have to be a massive sports fan to enjoy it I'm never really sure about that I always think I understand the point that all great sports books necessarily have more about them than simply the playing of the game, but I always think it probably helps to have either a depth of knowledge or a depth of passion towards the, the subject before you get into it. Or do the really do the really great ones actually? Could they take anybody, somebody who might be snobbish towards sport, and trans and transform them into a massive fan? Well, the the Seabiscuit is a work of great literature, you know, um, and that's part of the brilliance of you know great sports writers. They they can you know the writing is so inclusive. You know, it's not ultimately. Sea Biscuit isn't about horse racing, is it? It's about you know America in the nineteen thirties. It's about you know underdogs. It's about you know striving, and you know that's what great sports books do. They take you out of the sporting milieu and they take you into the kind of human experience. I don't want to get too pretentious about it, but it, you know it carries, it takes you, it transports you somewhere else. You know, into you know the human experience. Uh, you know, so you don't have to be. You know, David's story is a sporting life, you know, about the, the novel about r- rugby league. Um, again, it's more of a human story, isn't it? It's not a story about rugby league in, in, nor- in the nor- north of England in, in the 1960s. It's a, it's a story about, you know, relationships and, you know, like Seba is a story about relationships and experience and, and uh, you know, ups and downs. So that's what great sports books do. The problem with Fever Pitch, it doesn't quite take you out of... It just about takes you out of Arsenal, doesn't it? But it doesn't get much beyond that. Malagy, just uh, before we wrap this year's books, uh, we've been talking a little bit about the best Irish offerings. Your opinion on that? Because you wrote a big piece for the Irish Times last week. Yeah, I mean, uh, my my opinion of the best Irish book is pretty much the same as yours. I mean, I think the the bloodied field, the the story of Bloody Sunday in nineteen twenty, um, is is exactly as Lawrence says. You know, it's not it's not a sports book really. It's 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 a story of history. It's a story of of one of the darkest days in 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 Ireland's history um 32 people dead uh, between Croke Park and um and spies and soldiers shot in their beds uh, that morning um a really extraordinary piece of work uh and um I just just by by some distance the the yeah, sports book of the year yeah. and and maybe the best Irish book of the year and you've read Night Games which is the yeah. William Hill winner in the UK uh, this is Night Games Sex Parent Sport by Anna Crean yeah. uh, it's the kind of one that's probably popped up in people's radars and I don't know how many people have read it yet would you recommend it it's exactly that I would never have heard of it but that it won the William Hill so I'll always buy the William Hill winner to <laughs> see what it's like um, really interesting book uh, about a rape trial involving tangentially uh, Aussie Rules players um, and, an, and a look at sex and power, groupy culture, sexism, um, money uh, re- and, and top-level sport. Uh, it's really kind of disarmingly written at times, really kind of 
a really complicated and dense book that I don't know how you would sit down to write. I don't know, actually, could a man have written it? Um, but totally different to anything that I've I've read before. And interestingly, only the second woman, I think, to win that award after Laura Hillenbrand. It there was the go. first in 2001 for Sea Biscuits. So we'll, we'll wrap it up with that bit of symmetry there. Uh, Malachi, great to talk to you. Not at all. And Lawrence, if we do hear from any publishers about any offers out there for a ghostwriting gig, we'll let you know. Thanks. So we'll much. get our taste, though, Lawrence. Don't worry about <laughs> Thanks that. so much for talking to us. <laughs> yeah, but I'm waiting for the call from Tiger Woods. Shane <laughs> Curran with the kick out. The 42-year-old goalkeeper. Curling it out from goal. Here he comes. He topped it. He fought it. He's 50 yards out from goal. What a day for us coming. All the mother niggas lame and you know it now. When the real nigga hold you down, you're supposed to drown. Bam. 1944 is the last time a senior child can come out of here. And the one, 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 be the last one. Bam. What a day for us coming. Leave a pretty girl sad reputation. Start a fight club, Brad reputation. I asked the question. Did anybody deserve to lose at the Lara Club final? Give me a tech 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 if you know the answer. It'll be heartbreak on either side. Imagine being eight up. Imagine coming eight down. Shane Curran has been lifted by an umpire. The sub goalie. Two castle barmen. And a British man. I can't see Curran continuing. It could be his last race out of goal. What a day for us coming. Oh, absolutely brilliant to have the two guys on there and I didn't really have time to to bang on too much about George Plimpton um, but I do always like when his books get a nod out of my league was his first ever uh, that idea of playing the triangle uh, it, it, the it, New York Philharmonic yeah, yeah. is absolutely amazing the, it was a more sport related one the out of my league which was uh, an all-star baseball game which he managed to wangle himself a, a, a place in well it wasn't that hard he actually just t- said to Sports Illustrated give me a thousand dollars that's an extremely funny book that's uh, a very funny book probably the funniest book that, that I've ever written and, and, uh, ever, re- ever written uh, that I've ever read uh, I think we have probably mentioned it in previous accounts so there's no need to talk mm. too much but it is it's, it, it's, it was good to talk to the two guys given how different and Maliki has written other books and obviously Lawrence has written other books but uh, just those different approaches. There's, there's your, you've got your ghostwriter, and then you've got, uh, well, Donegan says yeah, himself. The one way where you're very much trying to get out of the way of the book, and the other in which you are the book mm. to a greater or lesser extent. So, I mean, there are two opposite ways of going about. Although, yeah, I'm not going to say that every ghostwriter has successfully managed to to step no. out of the book. Sometimes you do see a, a little bit of them in it, but we should probably throw a couple of our own all timers onto that list. I think there've been a few great ones knocking around the office. Yeah, well, I'll tell you one that I, I read this year. That uh, is by no means a new book, but not as well. No, no, no. Yeah, the the game by Ken Dryden, and it's actually it was mentioned in the brilliant Dunlog Cusack piece about goalkeepers that he wrote uh, that actually got traction um, uh, sort of worldwide. Sid Lowe retweeted it. A number of other really uh, high profile. Is that not the Suarez one that was that got the traction worldwide? Did he wrote? Uh, no, no. Oh, okay. the, 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 it was about it was, Iker Casillas. Yeah, it was at least two. The Casillas yeah, one yeah. was very good. That was after the Champions League final. Wasn't brilliant, it? Article, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and uh, he mentioned this book, and it was actually a, a book that I'd always intended getting around to reading. The game by Ken Dryden, but it's a it's a book written by uh, former ice hockey goalkeeper Ken Dryden, uh, who was the goalkeeper on the Montreal Canadiens uh, throughout the 1970s, um, who were massively, massively successful team. And uh, they won six uh, Stanley Cups, actually, while, while he was playing. Dryden was playing in goals for them. And it's, ver- it's really, really brilliantly written because it's, it's, it was uh, written, tra- it was a kind of a, a diary of a season as he was kind of grappling with retirement and he retired at the end of the season. And he, he didn't release it until 1983, which I actually thought is very interesting because... A lot of the, the books that you see, right, Brian Driscoll retires, he has to have a book out within six weeks of him retiring or, you know, whatever. They, they seem to be very much time specific. got to be out in uh, October mm-hmm. to make sure that, you know, they're available for the Christmas market. The guy wrote it, took his time, wanted to make sure that it was written correctly and then gave it the perspective, you know, look, you look back four years to a season, it's not... You're not looking for the salacious details of that season. You know, if if it was really six weeks after, it's like, okay, talk to me about the playoff game that, you know, the decisive game six in the semifinals, you know. Whereas if you wait four years, you don't really care about the season. What you actually care about is what's in the book, what he gives of the professional life. And that's what the book's all about. I mean, it's not about... it. it I actually thought, found it really interesting because I was reading it just as Kilkenny were... 
uh, were on the verge and went on to win their 10th All-Ireland under Brian Cody. And it's actually about how it's really difficult for a team to that are, that are so used to winning to stop winning. Yeah. That they just get into the habit, that they actually they just can't stop. That the teams are beaten before they go out in the ice against them. Uh, teams, the, the the teams look around like you know you play the regular season in the in ice hockey. Maybe it's, it's obviously slightly different to the hurling, but you know you you play the regular season and these games they just win despite themselves because they have so many good players. They're so used to winning. That, oh, if I don't do it today, the guy beside me is going to do it. You know, or you know if if the time comes, I'm going to make the save that wins the game, and that's it. And the, it's nearly a, it's a joyless existence this this team that just can't stop winning um but it's so good everything about his marriage about his decision to retire the idea that he's uh you know a law graduate has has you know a a, a life beyond ice hockey that he knows the, his teammates don't have and he has to kind of grapple with that and he's seen as an outsider because he took a year off to do the bar exam it's 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 just brilliant. yeah, and it's, there's some shades of uh, some shades of only a game in that as well. Uh, yeah, which has already been mentioned. Here. So what's the name of that book again? It's the game by Ken Dryden, and you can pick it up on Amazon. Um, uh, you know, it's still very much in print. There's loads of copies of it on Amazon, and I really would recommend it. It's really really good. One I got around to this year was the Amateurs by David Halberstam, who's a Pulitzer Prize winning author and historian in the U.S. But he's couple of, written a couple of the great American sports books, and this one centers on amateur rowing and the trials to get a place in the boats for the 1984 Olympics. I kind of laugh as I say. Because it doesn't necessarily sound like the most fascinating topic, but he presents all these unbelievably privileged rich kids in Yale and Harvard uh, and just tries to get to the core of why they put themselves through the physical hell involved in that sport for very little tangible reward, given that they're already pretty much guaranteed to live an amazing, rich and fruitful yeah. life. It's, it's, it's worth a read. I wouldn't rate it quite as highly as, um, yeah. uh, as the game. But it's definitely worth it. Yeah, and I, you know, you're, you're talking about the book there, um, as in it's you know, the trials for the 1984 Olympic rowing team. Mm. And up against the careers of Roy Keane and Brian O'Driscoll, for instance, it shouldn't stand a chance. But I mean, that's the point, really, oh, yeah, isn't it? Like, yeah. That's... That, that, the more you think about these things, they're obviously going to sell really well because they're recognised names. But the the closer you get to the summit of sport, the maybe the the less the less honesty you're going to find. You know, yeah. I mean, it, it, it's just that's the payoff, isn't it? Really, hundred percent. Yeah, and if you're you did mention about that book being available on Amazon or whatever, but the I suppose the issue there, if you're shopping for Christmas, it might be too late to get some of those older books. You can always buy a voucher. Uh, get your loved one to have it ordered in in January. But one last one from this year, which should be available in the shops at the moment in Ireland, is Cycle of Lies, The Fall of Lance Armstrong by Juliette McCurr. Now, I'm in the middle of reading this, and the little badge on the cover states this is the definitive inside story, and that's exactly what it is. If you've read a lot of Lance, I know you have, Ken. Mm-hmm. Some of the stuff will be familiar, uh, particularly, say, you've read the Tyler Hamilton book. Yeah. A lot, you know, some of the doping, uh, specific doping in 99, doping in those years. It's a little bit old ground, and if, and if you've had a look at the uh, large parts of that, you saw the report. Some of that is, is can be a bit repetitive, but she's, it's the most, by a mile, the most in-depth portrait of, portrait of Lance as a person that I've ever read. Mm. His complicated relationship with his mother, for example, it's always painted that they have always been incredibly close over the years. And she brought him up with no no support from a you know a single mother all the way up, which actually isn't true. There were uh, different men, but there were there were men who saw this portrayal and thought, "Hang on, I was I was essentially stepfather to this guy for say fifteen years, mm. and I've been airbrushed out of here." You know, now, the the biological father didn't have any real role in his life. That's yeah, true, but yeah, yeah. there were others. There are just moments that her her source, the most amazing source for the book, is a guy called J.T. Neal. Right, he'd been a a father figure, uh, a friend, an agent, a patron of Armstrong in the early years. The two of them. She had an unbelievably close bond. Uh, they actually both got cancer around the same time and uh, they were just unbelievably close to each other before Lance obviously threw him onto the scrap heap yeah, <laughs> for yeah. no particular reason at some point of his life as he's done with uh, quite a lot of people. Now, JT Neal himself died of cancer more than 10 years ago but in the last couple of years of his life he recorded 26 hours of audio in the hopes of writing a book which he never got around to releasing. His son or, or somebody from his family released all this to McCurry to the writer and said, knock yourself out, you know. So it's just incredible that she mines those tapes for all they're worth and reveals particularly a part of Lance before he became super famous mm. that I just think is absolutely brilliant. As I say, I'm only... Uh, I hesitate to recommend something that I'm only halfway through, but I've enjoyed the first 200 pages, so unless the second 200 are a complete disaster. <laughs> really stinks to join That's out. called, uh, what did I say what the full title of it was? Uh, cycle, cycle of Lies. Cycle of Lies, yeah. So I think we probably, probably recommended enough at this stage. Time to get down to brass tacks here, Murph. Our top three 
We'll just keep it to Irish sports books this year. Top three Irish sports books. Well, the the, uh, available in Ireland, shall we say? So three mm-hmm. is Cake by Shane Curran. Uh, two is Diego Torres, the special one, uh, the Secret Life of Jose Mourinho. But number one, and I know Ken, you're not going to be happy about this. But number one is The Bloody Field by Michael Foley. I mean, we gave you. Well, that makes it sound like I'm against The Bloody no, Field. Well, that's, that's the Bloody Field, which I haven't read yet. That's not your choice. But yes. when, when in fact all I am is pro. Uh, this gothic masterpiece from Spain, the um, secret life of uh, Jose Mourinho, aged 53 and 51. <laughs> so, but The Bloody Field by Michael Foley is our, uh, is our choice. The second captain's book of the year, 2014. Congratulations. Great to, to talk to you guys about sports books. I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed our toy show, our late, late toy show. Uh, I enjoyed it too, On Thanks for having me. Not at, not at all. Just before we go, Malachi Clerken, who you've just heard from, wrote a super piece today about the current state of women's sport in Ireland in particular. You can have a read of that. In between all the books, if you have time to read an article, read that one. It's part of the build-up to the big day tomorrow, Friday. It's like a book, only shorter. When the Irish Times, Irish Sports Council, Sportswoman of the Year is announced. Keep an eye out for that one. In the meantime, happy reading, folks, and thanks for listening. Take care. That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home, those, those, those boys. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.